This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host of The Takeout. You know we love to take this show on the road. And we are on the road this week. We are in New York City. New York City! At the original Carmine's. 31 years here at this location... It's a late afternoon lunch we're having, so if you don't see this place teeming with folks, that's because we're a little bit after the lunch hour, but we're going to eat nevertheless. Our guest is David Pope. If you watch CBS Sunday morning, and I think you do, you know who he is. If you read the New York Times, Yahoo News, if you have watched Nova, if you have seen just about anything on the Discovery Channel that deals with touches on science, you know who David Pope is. David, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. You also have a brand new podcast out, and one of the things we love to do at this show is cross-podcast pollination. (laughs) It's not a really scientific term, but I'd like to make it one if I could. CPP, as it's known. (laughs) Exactly. So your new podcast is Unsung Science. What is that? The concept is each week we tell the story of the -the behind-the-scenes story of a breakthrough in science or technology that is something that everyone's familiar with but doesn't know who did it, who made it, what the hard parts were, and so on. And, you know, the best episodes are ones where it was not at all sure that the outcome would be a good one, you know, that they they thought it could flop. Um, You know, the mRNA vaccines, that there's this incredible woman who's been working on that since the late 80s, dismissed by the entire scientific community, you know, that'll never work. You're going to kill the cells. She was demoted. She was uninvited from conferences. She couldn't get grants. And then in 2005, she figured it out. Two companies came out of that paper that she published that had never existed before. One was Moderna and one was BioNTech. So the two... The you two, might have heard of them. Yeah, They've exactly. They've kind of in the news lately a so little they, bit. So they literally founded those companies based on her work. And now they say she's going to win the Nobel Prize. So that's an example or uh, how they landed the rover on Mars, the latest rover, given that it's an 11 and a half minute delay, you can't remote control it. So no. there can be no human intervention. So it has to be entirely pre-programmed and autonomous. So how do they do that? And anyway, so, so I love stories like these that uh, things we've all heard of, but, but who did it? Who and did how'd it they and do how? It? What's not pre-programmed, David, on this show is our ordering. <laughs> Denise, please join us here at the table here at Carmine's in New York City. 
Denise, I will have the chicken parmesan. I understand it's kind of a thing here. Yes, it's a really delicious dish. Um, would you like that over pasta? Yes, uh, I've already talked to the chef. He's going to give me rigatoni with that. So then, David, what would wow. you like? Do you have uh, any Italian food? Yes. <laughs> Believe it or not, they have one or two dishes. <laughs> they kind of squeeze them in off the edges. Um, well, if I had to choose between the penne alla vodka and the bolognese, what would you recommend? The bolognese is pretty amazing. Really? All right, let's do it. All right. Um, what pasta would you like for that? Spaghetti, linguine, angel hair, rigatoni, or pinna? How about linguine? Linguine. I'll grab you guys some bread to snack on while... That'll be great. Thank, Thank you, Denise. So I want to talk to you about the vaccine episode because not only was it a very difficult, arduous journey, as you mentioned, lots of rejection, but also this is a new way to make and think about and apply vaccines. And I wonder, as you did the research and watched this play out in America that some of the hesitancy about vaccine, not politicized, but just straight hesitancy, is from this new way of doing it. And do you understand that from either a tech or scientific perspective? I mean, I think there's two reasons that people reject science, whether it's climate science or the vaccine or, you know, 5G. Uh, People are terrified of a lot of new things, self-driving cars. And what they all have in common are, number one, they're new science. They, They didn't exist when we grew up. There's no such thing as someone who denies that ice becomes water when heated. You know, there's no such thing as a photosynthesis denier. And the second thing is that these are all invisible things. You can't see the virus. You can't see the software in a self-driving car. Um, You can't see radio waves for 5G. So those two things, recent technologies that are invisible, are the ones that people are going to reject, are going to be suspicious of. And yeah, they're, they're totally uh, understandable in the sense that our ancestors survived by being wary of the unknown. Right. So you don't go into that cave because you might get eaten by something. Uh, and we still have those... Or you don't go into that valley because you may not be able to find your way out. That's right. That's right. So we still have that in our, in our instincts. It, it takes some really intellectual work to overcome them, if anything. But I mean... And practical lived experience. Yeah. Which that's is also right. what we don't have. And that's right. And, and by the way, the, on, on the Unsung Science episode, that's part of the purpose of doing it is what we're saying is that unfamiliarity is scary. Mm-hmm. So my job is to make these things not unfamiliar. Right. To keep mentioning them, to reveal the backstory, to explain that you've had an mRNA in your body your entire life and we're doing nothing different than doing what it's always done. And uh, without going so deeply into the science that people get a little nervous and a little edgy, help them in a brief way comprehend what mRNA is, if that's doable. Yeah, it stands for messenger RNA. It's a molecule in every cell of your body that shuttles between the DNA, which everyone's heard of, that's in the center of the cell, and the outside of the cell. The mRNA, the messenger, goes back and forth carrying instructions from the DNA to the equipment, the factory in the outer edge of the cell that makes proteins, vaccines, things that help you digest your food and fall asleep and fight disease and so on. So the thought was, man, if we could teach that mRNA to tell the uh, protein-making equipment in the outer edge of the cell to make this vaccine for this new virus, that's a lot more efficient and safe than if we inject it into you than to inject something we made in a vat. Right, which is the way vaccines have been produced and administered since smallpox. That's right. Um, 
And you'd be like astonished at how ancient and crude the methods of making, for example, the flu vaccine. To this day, the flu vaccine is made in chicken eggs. Right. And then, and then injected into us. And by the way... And it's a big spin of the wheel. Maybe we're 10% right. Maybe we're 50% right in terms of what it is that's going to be coming in this year's avian flu virus. That's right. They, the scientists have to guess a year in advance what flu strain will be running through our systems a year from now. And in some years, they're only 10% right. I mean, right. some years they totally blow it. The beauty of mRNA is you can make it fast. We can make the vaccine weeks after the flu becomes apparent. And this is where I think those two things you talked about earlier collide. It's new and it's fast. And that is, is if not shocking, unsettling to some people. It wasn't to me. I got in line as fast as I possibly could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the viruses and the vaccines are new, but the technology, mRNA, has been with us since we evolved. I mean, we're using a very natural system. And, of course, it's now been tested on millions upon millions of people. Right. And that breakthrough is helping us get to what we hope we are feeling, which is not the end, but nearer to the end of this pandemic. What's yeah. your sense of that? I, I, I have my doubts. I, I think I'm more... Uh, I, I should say that a month ago, I had a breakthrough case. Okay. I'm, I'm a stickler. I'm fully vaxxed, uh, masked everywhere I go. I don't shake hands. And I got it. You still got it, right. Pa- apparently passing through an airport with a mask on. I mean, this Delta variant is unbelievably virulent. It'll go right through those masks, right through those vaccines. Now... My illness was fairly mild because I had the vaccine, so I was so glad I had the vaccine. But considering, A, that people are going to get it, even vaccinated, and B, that a lot of people still won't get the vaccine, uh, I think it's going to be, as they say, an endemic. It's going to be like the flu. Right. It's going to be it's something be around. people get every every winter. We maintain your caution. On that note, David Pogue is our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. The music you hear, Carmine's Late Lunch, soon to arrive from Tanise. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout in just one second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back to Carmine's in New York City. What what neighborhood are we in, David Pogue? Uh, I would call this the Upper West Side. Upper West Side of New York. Thank you very much. My New York geography as a native of San Diego, California, a little on the weak side, okay? So a couple of things I want to mention about David Pogue. Natalie on CBS Sunday Morning, correspondent there, does tremendous work for us there. A book that came out in February of this year, How to Prepare for Climate Change, and then this brand new podcast, Unsung Science. How to Prepare for Climate Change, quickly. What is that book about? Obviously, the title's pretty suggestive. 
Is that what it's actually about? And can you do that? Can <laughs> you actually prepare for climate change? John Holdren was Barack Obama's chief science advisor, and he famously said, there are two responses we can take to climate change. There's mitigation, which means trying to stop it, you know, fly less and eat less red meat and turn off the lights. And there's adaptation, which is accepting that things have changed for good and how do we cope with it. And, and then there's suffering is the third option. And he said, the question is, how much are we going to do of the first two that will determine how much we do of the last one? To my amazement, everything written and said about reacting to climate change has been about mitigation. Right. And, and we do need to do that. We do need to decarbonize, yes. But nobody says anything about adaptation, adaptation. and preparation. So this book is how to ensure where to live, what to grow, how to talk to your children, how to invest, um, how to ride out hurricane flood, wildfire, ticks and mosquitoes, social unrest. It's all the things that you can do to make yourself more resilient, you, your family, your house, uh, as these inevitable things come our way. And for those who feel either a pronounced sense or mild sense of fatigue about this conversation, what would you say? Yeah, boy, I, I know. Uh, we're, we're having It's crisis, like the pandemic and then the climate. And like, fatigue, seriously, yeah. can't I just do whatever I'd like to do and That's feel right. good about it? Unfortunately, the climate crisis did not take a year off during the <laughs> pandemic. Um, 2020, we had the hottest temperature ever recorded on the planet, 131 degrees. We had the greatest number of hurricanes, so many that they ran out of the alphabetical right. male and female names, had to start using Greek letters. Um, we had record wildfires yes. um, in the West this year. We're still getting wildfires, and we've got severe drought. So I can't predict when a climate crisis will hit you, you know, by name, but I know that you will be stuck with something. 25 million Americans a year get face-to-face -face with some kind of weather disaster. And so if you know it's coming... Why wouldn't you want to prepare for it? Right. And one thing I'd like to point out for our audience as just a reminder. So 2020 was this year of significant climate impacts. Yet, because of the pandemic globally, we were pumping less carbon into the air. What does that tell us? Not that there's anything askew. What that tells us is carbon in the atmosphere is baked into this equation. And heating and warming has effects even when, in the moment, we're not pumping as much carbon into the air. Yeah, that's right. There was the biggest dip in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since we began recording it during the pandemic. And what that tells me, as you say, is that we do have our hand on the lever. We shut down the factories. We stopped flying. We stopped driving during the pandemic. And boom, the carbon dioxide problem got a lot better. So it really is our hand on the wheel of this thing. Right. And yet, the accumulated amounts still will give us effects that we're going to have to live with. Yes, we have just hit 421 parts per million. That is molecules per million molecules in the atmosphere, which is the highest ever recorded in the history of our species. Right. So back to unsung science. You had a fascinating, I mean, really mind-blowing episode devoted to mosquitoes. And as I was listening to that... You had this very helpful early segment. Well, there are three things, three facts about mosquitoes you need to know. I didn't know any of those three. So please, <laughs> on my behalf and behalf of my beloved audience, tell them the three things about mosquitoes they need to know, but probably don't. I, I think the first thing that blew my mind is that only the females bite. 
every mosquito species, the boys don't bite. They don't even have a mouth that can bite skin. So it's only the females. Number two is they're not doing it to be mean. They just need blood to raise babies, and they get it from us. So we just happen to be a handy source. And by the way, we've put ourselves in their habitat. So uh, we can't entirely blame them. And then the, the third thing is that these aren't their diseases that they're spreading. They're spreading diseases that originated in other species, like from us to us. Right. Um, and, and by the way, there's a fourth one, which really blows my mind. In the time of, of the climate crisis, mosquitoes are spreading into new places uh, that, are, that are now warmer than they used to be. So they don't, you know, these tropical mosquitoes that carry the malaria, the dengue fever, the Zika, they're all moving north into the United States because the winters aren't as cold, doesn't kill them off. So the, the amazing thing about that is a mosquito can only fly 100 yards from its birthplace in its entire life. So this spread of mosquitoes is not the mosquitoes flying there. We are transporting the mosquitoes around the world. They travel on container ships. They travel in the old used tire trade, which is considerable. We get into our cars. We trap a mosquito. We drive across the state. We open the door. The mosquito flies out. We are moving the mosquitoes. So they have basically one zip code their entire life. That is true. If, if it weren't for humans, the mosquitoes would be exactly where they were a million years ago. Right. And yet, as you also said in that fascinating episode, no being on planet Earth kills more human beings than a mosquito. A Not million people a year. Yeah. It's the deadliest creature there is. Right. They, they kill more people than people do. <laughs> think about that for a second, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Think, just think about that. And so what do we do? We have a long, painful history in this country of insecticides and other interventions, chemical and otherwise, that don't work and create a tremendous amount of collateral, environmental, and human damage. True? Precisely right. Yeah, we can spray, but it's an arms race because, A, you kill innocent bystanders like butterflies and beetles. Pollinators and, and other things, yeah. Pollinators, that's right. Hugely important. And B, the mosquitoes develop resistance. So the chemical companies have to keep reformulating these insecticide sprays to keep up with the resistance. It's, it's, it's a no, no it's, win. It's game. ultimately futile. I mean, there's no, no telling how far we can go in, in reformulating the chemicals, but it does get into the water supply. It does get into the frogs and the fish and ultimately into us. And there is an alternative. There is an alternative. David, I know you know what it is. <laughs> so let's tell everybody what Tune it is. Tune in next week. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, right now. <laughs> well, that was, that was the focus of the first episode of Unsung Science. And it's the craziest idea. This Google programmer, it's a guy who wrote Google Chrome, the web browser. Mm -hmm. And Google has this long-standing fellowship thing where if you've done something great for the company... They'll say, you can now do whatever you want and we'll pay for it. So he said, I'd like to tackle the mosquito problem using a variation on a technique that's been used since the 50s on other pests. Like there's this nasty thing called the screwworm fly that used to kill billions of cattle a year all over the world. It nestles into the body of the cow and eats its way from the inside out. It's horrible, nasty stuff. So we figured out that if we could sterilize the males with gamma rays in a lab and airdrop them with airplanes over the fields, they would mate with the females, they'd still have mosquito sex, they'd still lay eggs, 
but the eggs would never hatch. And do you know, we reduced the screwworm fly problem to nothing. So it's been decades, that problem has gone away. So he's like, maybe we could do this with the nastiest of these mosquito species, but something safer and more natural than gamma rays. We're going to use, well, here we go. I'm getting, <laughs> my wife says I can dominate a cocktail party conversation with this thing. But anyway, there's this bacteria. It's in 60% of the insects of the world, completely natural, completely harmless. It doesn't do anything but exists. And David... I'm going to hold you on that bacterial <laughs> name for just a moment because we got to go to break. And here we're at Carmine's, the Upper West Side of New York City, talking about mosquito sex with David Pogue <laughs> because that's part of Unsung Science and his mosquito episode, which I guarantee you is awesome. Back for our late lunch, Carmine's, and more on mosquito sex. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. We'll see you in a minute. Back for segment three. I promise. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Original car mines in the Upper West Side of New York City. David Pogue is our special guest. You've heard about muskrat love. This is much better. Mosquito sex. David, we stopped you at this a very important scientific moment. You were about to describe this miraculous bacteria. Please continue. Right. So Linus Upson, mm-hmm. guy who helped develop the Chrome web browser, now wants to rid the world of this nasty number one public enemy mosquito, Aedes aegypti, which is moving north into the United States, moving up the California coast, terrorizing citizens. This is the only mosquito that doesn't stop biting you once it's full. She will continue to bite you all day just to be an a-hole. So he says, maybe we can stop this thing. Technical scientific term. (laughs) With the sterile insect technique, which has never been tried on mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. So his concept is... We build a factory. We raise boy and girl mosquitoes and infect them with this completely harmless natural bacteria called Wolbachia. And the funny thing about this is if a boy and girl mosquito in the wild mate, they have babies. If two Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes mate, they have babies. But if one has Wolbachia and the other doesn't, the eggs won't hatch. So all they got to do is raise 20 million mosquitoes a summer and release only the males right, into the public, and they will mate with the wild females, and no mosquitoes will be so born. So if you're following along at home, and I know you are, <laughs> the question now arises, David, how, how is it possible to separate male and female mosquitoes in a factory? Yeah. How? This how is... can this be done? It can't be done, can it? This is really the best part of the story. And Denise is here with our... Very much family-style approach to lunch. <laughs> yes. So we'll be back okay. in 45 minutes after yes, we eat, Yes, the right? schooner of food has arrived. <laughs> they do family-style at Yes, Carmine's. exactly. Man. Exactly. Uh, so how, is, how, do you, how do you separate so them? They do, so first, they put them through a sieve. Believe it or not, the males and females are slightly different sizes. The females are slightly bigger. So they put the mosquitoes that they've raised through a sieve... And they re- screen out 99% of the females, and they kill them. 
and they ship them off to the city dump. But you can't release any of these Wolbachia males into the wild. Uh, sorry, sorry, you can't release any of the Wolbachia females into the wild because then they'll just mate with the Wolbachia males that you've released, right. and you'll make the problem worse. Right. So they have to figure out how to kill those last 1% of the females. So if you can believe it, they designed and built machines. It took three years where they marched the mosquitoes that they've raised single file through this tiny channel, the width of your pinky, and a, a computer vision camera takes a picture of each bug and analyzes it on the spot. Is it male or female? If it's a female, a little side door opens and a puff of air blows the thing to its death. Let me guess. So down this little channel upon which they walk, the females see the super shots photo booth like in the mall. <laughs> And they can't help themselves. They go right in, right? Is that how it works? <laughs> they don't know, actually, why these mosquitoes are willing to walk across this little channel. They don't know. But it's really fun. They've, they've built it transparent so that you can watch it happen from above. And you, David Pogue, have watched it happen. Hours. And, uh, and then the males, they march straight ahead into this tube, this six-foot-long, one-foot-across, clear plexiglass tube that they then mount onto vans... And they drive around Fresno, was the test case, Fresno, California, and release millions upon millions of male sterile mosquitoes. And do you know... To the cheering throngs of suburbanites in Fresno, right? No. <laughs> the people were very suspicious. Uh, maybe you've heard people are suspicious of new science. Yes. Uh, people needed a lot of hand-holding. There were people who accused them of trying to poison them, kill them, tip, do mind control, uh, they, they had a huge public outreach program. They would have movie night, and they would bring these terrariums. This I didn't even have time for in the podcast. They would bring terrariums full of male mosquitoes and let the kids stick their arms in. And you know what would happen? Nothing. N nothing. Right. Because male mosquitoes don't, don't bite. bite. And that's how you teach people. Right. Male mosquitoes don't bite. We're going to be driving vans around, releasing millions of males, but they won't bite you. And sure enough, by so, the so when I watched those off commercials when I was a kid, do they just have a bunch of male mosquitoes in there that wouldn't <laughs> land on the arm? Is that how they did that? No, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't <laughs> surprise me at all. It's a, you know what I'm talking about, people of a certain age. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so here's the punchline. Incredibly. It worked. It worked. By the end of the first summer, they had reduced the mosquito population of Fresno by 95%. Unbelievable. Uh, this was just supposed to be a test case. They did it for three summers. And then they have now moved on to places where these mosquitoes are killing a lot more people. Singapore. Singapore. First tests are in from their... They built a similar factory there. 98.3% uh, effective. And what's interesting is this is a business. Mm -hmm. You know, Alphabet, the, the mother company of Google, wants to make money from this. Right. And so they make this deal with the governments of Singapore and also Puerto Rico... They say, we'll build this factory and eliminate your invasive mosquitoes for less money than you're spending now treating all the disease cases they bring to you. And it's kind of like an offer they can't refuse. Right. And I know the answer to this, but I want, to be, want you to explain it in your own words, because I think it might be on the audience's mind. Okay, David Pogue, is this forever, or is this a seasonal thing, two or three years? Is it... Let me use a cute, cute word, important word, generational. What is it? The beautiful and reassuring and satisfying thing about this approach is that it is confined to a single generation. Because think about it. This male that has the bacteria, 
it can't reproduce. Right. It's sterile. So every summer you have to do it again. So that's reassuring because it means there's no unintended consequences. Can't spread it on to another species. Can't spread it on to another generation. Can't affect any other you know, animal in the wild. So it's very, very limited and targeted to 80s Egypti one summer at a time. And that's one particular species that's of right. mosquito. No other mosquito is affected by this. Got it. That's right. So there are not these larger horror movie type ecological imbalances. Something is completely tilted out of whack and so many other things start happening that are negative and irreversible. A lot of people have written since, since the podcast hit to ask about that. Like, isn't this depriving the bats of their food? And isn't this uh, making it going to be harder to grow cocoa, which are pollinated by mosquitoes? And the answer is none of that. Please remember that Aedes aegypti is an invasive species that has just arrived in California. It belongs in the tropics. God made it in the tropics. We have been bringing it to the United States. Right. So all we're doing is erasing our own mistake. Right. So that's sort of, we put the damage here. We should be able to be given the wherewithal and the bandwidth and the acceptance to take it out. Now, now let me ask you this. So, so I've now said everything there is to reassure people, everything there is to explain why this is very limited in scope, one species, one summer, no possibility of spreading. Obviously, there are people who don't care about what I've just said and are terrified by the notion of playing God and tampering. So you're, you heard the episode. Mm-hmm. How satisfied were you when you heard the intellectual reasons that it's safe? And how much were you left with a lingering sense of unease? I had no lingering sense of unease. I was most amazed by the idea that there could be an intervention of this kind that, based on what we know now, has not one describable unattended consequence. That blows my mind. Because oftentimes there are interventions and you weigh the, the... the difference. Well, yeah. we've done this, we've achieved this, but there's this little thing over here that we can't ignore that's kind of an unintended consequence, and it's a negative. But up against this, we'll still we'll balance those out. and right. we'll take. But this one does, does not appear to have any of those things, because you just enumerated the things that could possibly go wrong that simply don't. I, I will that say, was reassuring to me. I, I hammered Linus Upson pretty hard on this. I'm like, are you telling me on national television, because we did a TV story mm. about this too, that there is no unintended consequence that you can think of. And he said, none that we can think of. The whole thing was conceived from the beginning to prevent that. Like, that was, that was why they chose this approach. The one drawback, he says, is that it's super expensive. Yes. You have to build a factory and make mosquitoes march through a tunnel. Uh, and, and, you know, it only is going to work on a national basis where there's a government willing to pay so for it. So one thing that brings unintended consequences, David Pogue, is trying to serve yourself family-style Italian food on camera. We are not going to do that, all right? We're going to go to break, and when you come back, it will be here, and then we'll start consuming it. I'm Major Garrett. David Pogue is our special guest. Back for segment four of The Takeout from Carmine's in New York City in just one second. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. As I promised, the food was there. Now it's here and being consumed. David Pogue is our special guest. I want to ask about something that's very broad in the world that you've lived in most of your professional career, the intersection of humanity, technology, and science. It has been said by people much smarter than me that the digital age is as transformative rather, as the industrial age. That as much as that changed life from agrarian to industrial, now this digital age is changing us in ways as profound, culturally, economically, politically, the way we live, the way we think, all these sorts of things. Would you agree with that general premise? And do you think the digital age is nearing its end, or are we in some sort of midpoint, or are we still at the very beginning of it? Is that even knowable? <laughs> um, Those are really easy ones I thought I'd give you. Yeah, thank you for the softballs. Uh, I w- yeah, I would certainly agree that the digital age is, is as influential and important. Um, no, it's not done. I mean, any, anything that is still analog is, uh, is not yet digital, and we're, we're, not, we're totally not fully there yet. So um, every year we think we've seen it all. You know, what a service where ordinary citizens can make money driving people around in their cars. I mean, mm-hmm. that'll never fly. <laughs> And we haven't seen the end of those ideas. Mm-hmm. Shall I stop my answer while your mouth is full at a perfect timed? <laughs> yeah, that was good, David. You, you saw me in full, full mouth. You're like, okay, here we go. I'm stopping the tape, Major. Jump in. So, we heard recently a company previously known as Facebook changed its name to Meta. Is there a way to describe what the metaverse is or could be? Yeah. Uh, I, I, the whole thing kind of cracks me up. I mean, Facebook is in dire public relations trouble right now. And uh, it's just the perfect misdirection. Look over here. <laughs> so we've got a new name. So they wanted to make their name Meta in the same way that Google made their name Alphabet. And that is a mothership overarching company. Um, the metaverse is just this goofy name for augmented reality, you know, virtual reality. It's it's wearing a headset and seeing things that aren't really there and presumably seeing other people in this sort of second life world uh, where you're seeing their avatars and you can talk to them even though in the real world you're thousands of miles apart. Is that necessary or helpful? <laughs> Not as necessary and helpful as I think the, pro- the advocates Propon- would believe. Proponents, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I can remember when those oculus headsets first came out and people were like this is going to be amazing nobody will go to movies anymore you'll be inside the film and i'm like okay first of all the reason you go to a movie is to be with other people to share your screaming and your laughing and your crying this is the ultimate isolating technology i mean there was a samsung ad last christmas for their uh, virtual reality headset and it showed the uh the grandfather trying on the headset and, of course, going, wow, I'm in space. But in the commercial, what, was the other, what were the other members of the family doing? Sitting on the couch, waiting for their turn. Right. Not being able to see what he was seeing. It's right. the ultimate isolating experience. And isn't that one of the unintended negative consequences of the digital space and the digital age, isolation? It is. I mean, things change, right? Mm-hmm. So my, my children... 
are texting on their phones all the time, but they're texting on their phones to arrange getting together at the mall or they're right. planning what they're going to do at the prom or whatever. I mean, they're they, look, things change. Things have always changed. Right. Change isn't inherently bad. No. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's worse. Um, my grandfather lived to be 107, mm-hmm. and he used to tell me that when he was growing up, they his parents would yell at him for listening to the radio. radio. That's going to rot your brain. Right. When I was growing up, it was TV. That's going to rot your brain. Now it's the phones. That's going to rot your brain. Like, every generation has its bugaboo. So I really think that in the big scheme of things, people evolve, society evolves, but it doesn't necessarily mean worse. It's worse in some places, mm-hmm. but it's a lot better in some places. The other episode I listened to, An Unsung Science, which is uh, at the top or very, or the top podcast downloader in the nation right now, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Is about deep fakes. Are they a thing? Or is that kind of like, um, we shouldn't really worry about this? It's interesting because you and I are both journalists. You and I both know the hook of this possibility. A deep fake is a computer-generated version of a real person. So you can, and you can make him do whatever you want. So you can have Biden say, I like to have sex with sheep, you know, whatever, and release that video and it goes viral and no one can tell the difference. So obviously that's terrifying. Everyone's like, that's the end of democracy. That's the end of trust. We don't know what to believe anymore. Uh, that one, that quarter has already been rounded, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But Without deep fakes, that corner has already been rounded. But I would like to point out, raise my hand, say there hasn't yet been any case where that really happened, where anybody was fooled. There have been deep fakes of Tom Cruise and Trump and Obama um, and n- nobody has ever tried to put one over on the public. Now, um, the, my episode is, uh, is about audio, audio deepfakes, right. which is about simulating people's voices. Yes. That's also here. Um, you'd think it would be easier than the video, but it's not. It's actually harder to do than the video fakes. And here again, that has never turned into a terrifying case. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take it seriously. That doesn't mean that people aren't working on technologies to fight it off. And as you raise in that episode... And it's the one part of it that kind of hooked into me. Let's say someone released virally what they purported to be was a private conversation between someone who was very public and well-known, be politician or, let's say, an entertainer. Mm-hmm. And it's very negative. It sounds just like them. And that becomes believed, well, that's a mountain of hurt for whoever is being deep-faked in an audio way. You can't see it, so all you're doing is going off the voice cues. And as I learned from your episode, the voice cues are getting incredibly sophisticated and they are able to match things that you would not think are e- easily matchable, such as pacing, mm-hmm. emphasis, breathing, mm-hmm. and the like. Yeah. At the end of the episode, I commissioned one of these companies to do a voice fake of my voice. Uh, were, you, were you convinced by that? Was it, was I it? would say I was 95% convinced. Yeah. But I have, a, I have an ear in this business that is a little bit more highly tuned. Mm-hmm. I know what the patterns and breathing sound like. I know what intonation sounds like. I pay very close attention to enunciation. That's part of my, what I do, yeah. part of my training, yeah. part of this world. So I would say I'm a little bit higher on the sensitivity scale, but it was very, very close. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super close. Um, what I loved is, uh, I, as far as I know, I broke the story of this incredible, incredible conglomeration of now over 400 companies who have a solution to deep fakes. And I would just like to 
help spread the word. It's so cool. Adobe, the Photoshop maker, is the one who, who started thinking, we're never going to have technology that can detect whether this is fake or not. It's an arms race. They'll always be getting better. So maybe what we can do is invent a system where we can prove that something is real, which effectively does the same thing, right? So if you, if you say a, a clip of, uh, of, of Joe Biden running over a baby animal and laughing about it, um, and you look for this little stamp of authenticity, and it's not there, then you can conclude, okay, it probably is a fake. So in, in order to make this work, they had to get the camera makers on board, the software makers on board, the computer makers, the uh, social media companies, the news agencies. So they've got them. Facebook, Twitter, New York Times, BBC, CBC, uh, Nikon, uh, everyone in the chain from when a picture or a video is taken to the time you see it on the internet. They will preserve that invisible stamp of authenticity and you, the consumer, will be able to click this little button on it and see the complete chain of custody. You'll see who took the picture, when, and what edits were made to it. It was cropped on August 3rd. It was color corrected on August 5th. Then it appeared on Facebook and then wound up in the New York Times. You know, so you'll be able to see everything, including, if you wish, the original photo or video. It is a digital journalistic version of a blockchain. And if you know what a blockchain is, kids, look it up. David Pogue has been our special guest. Carmines has been our host up Upper West Side of New York City. Stay tuned for the CBS and for, for our audience on CBSN, for the Takeout Outtake Especial and our podcast platform. For our radio audience, we must bid you a happy and gluttonous farewell. We'll see you next week at the Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. The show is on the road this week, happy to say, Upper West Side of New York. Carmine's the original. I've been here 31 years. We are digging deeply into our family-style Italian food. David Pogue is our special guest. If you watch CBS Sunday Morning, you know his work there. If you read the New York Times, you know his work there. Discovery Channel, PBS, Nova, lots of books. If you are a fan or... Have you used any of the Dummies series? He's written seven of those books. Does a lot of stuff. It's just really cool <laughs> all the way around. So, David, we have three questions we have asked every single guest on the show. They love the questions. Our audience loves the answers because it gets them to find out a little bit more about whoever we've been talking to. So, take these questions in whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books? All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to enjoy some music, I mean really, really get into it, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Wow. Well, Your Honor, I'd like to begin with the last question first. <laughs> um, I am... The witness as, will proceed. 
As some people know, I am a former Broadway conductor. My first job out of college was uh, a musician in the pit, conducting shows, and to this day, I really love show tunes. Um, I don't mean just, you know, the classics from the 40s and 50s. I mean, I like to hear what people are writing now. Mm -hmm. I love Hamilton. I love Jonathan Larson, whatever people are doing. Um, Favorite movie is Groundhog Day. I remember sitting in that theater saying, not only is this a funny movie with a fascinating story, but it's it's making a comment about life and our lives. And and a good one. Yes. Um, On the, the web, you can find lengthy essays written from a Jew, Jew, Jewish perspective, a Christian perspective, a Buddhist perspective. <laughs> Almost all major religions are represented by people who are taking that movie and applying it through their religious histories and either dogma or rituals. Wow. And finding deep meaning in it. And, and I'll tell you, it really influenced my life, and I'm going to go off on a tangent that you can just Please. edit right out if nope. you need to. we never do that. <laughs> but I remember reading a scientific paper about our perception of how long our lives are. And they pointed out that the first time you do any experience, it seems to take longer than the second time you do something. Right. If you ever go to a party at a new person's house... It always seems that, like you got home from it much quicker than it took you to get there. Mm-hmm. And when you were a kid, summertime seemed to stretch forever. Mm-hmm. And now, like, summer's just like, blink, Gone. and it's over. Yes. And it's for that reason. It's because you are forming neural pathways that didn't exist before when you do something for the first time. So to me, that's what Groundhog Day is saying. That if you want the longest and richest life, don't do things over and over. Take the path not taken try the dish you haven't had before take the path home that's a new route um i think it's a great philosophy um let's see most influential book um believe it or not i think the most influential book was dos for dummies this was not one that i wrote Mm -hmm. but it was a book written by book written by a guy named dan gookin and it was so in your face with that title that bookstores wouldn't stock it. Barnes & Noble and Borders would not put this book on the shelves. We are not going to insult our customers by calling them dummies. But the stance that Dan Gookin took in the book was us versus them, which had never been done in an instructional, instructional manual. He was like, they call this stuff RAM just to make you feel inadequate. It's memory, okay? It's called memory. They're just trying to make you feel... so." It was revolutionary. Um, mine was the second book in the series. I did Max for Dummies, and all I did was try to imitate him. All I did was try to imu- Im- imitate Take the that information stance. and give it a populist flair. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was, I mean, it, it changed my life. We, we live in the house that Dummies built right. to this day. <laughs> so, Dan Gookin, wherever you are, my hat, sir, is off. And uh, other Dummies books you've done, Dummies uh, Opera? Yep, my classical music. Scott yeah, we did a, a classical and opera. Magic for Dummies, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. What is fun about magic from your perspective? And what do what 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 world opens to you if you learn a little bit about magic? I mean, the incredible thing about magic is that it's it's a performance, right? It's mm-hmm. entertaining, and yet there's a huge intellectual aspect to it where you're like, "Dang it, how did he do that?" And uh, I'm really into it to this day. It's incredible to me that in the internet age, magic is thriving like it is. I mean, there is not a trick out there 
that you can't Google how it's done. Why didn't that kill the art form? Right. It, it just doesn't because of the entertainment factor that's still there. And the presentation, the theatricality of it. That's right. And the passion, the verve. That's right. That goes with it. And they're constantly expanding the art into the technology world, which I really love. There's some absolutely phenomenal tricks involving smartphones. So um, Shin Lim, the winner of America's Got Talent, does this great trick where he, at the beginning of the trick, he takes a picture of you with your phone holding up a blank playing card. And then he does the trick and you pick a card. And then he says, now pick up your phone and look at the picture we took before. And now the picture has your card in place of the blank card. It is so good. How did he do it? Look it up, kids. That's the answer to this riddle. Look it up. David Pogue, has been a great pleasure. Been a pleasure for me, too. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for joining us here at the Takeout Table. Carmine's has been our host restaurant in the Upper West Side of New York City. We are still working through our family-style meal. It'll probably take us another week and a half, but we will finish that work. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week on The Takeout. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.